He worked from the time he got up at 7 in the morning to the time he went to bed at 10 or 11 at night when we closed. She lived in New York City, said if God meant for her to cook, he would not have had me live somewhere with such fine restaurants. My daughter was born about a year and a half ago, and other than the two weeks or so after she was born, I kind of jumped right back into that grueling schedule. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Soup Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I am Jessica Hinkin. This week, three love stories about the role that restaurants play in our lives with the sincere hope that our tables will be ready soon and we can get back in there. Mm-hmm. Before we get started, we want to thank Park School of Baltimore, a non-denominational K-12 independent school just north in the city. And let's get going to these stories. All right, our first storyteller, he is a well-known Baltimore-based artist. Um, Over the years, he had many jobs that supported his art habit, but he is best known as the owner-operator of Louis Bookstores Cafe, which you frequented, right, as a teenager? Yes, Yes, with my fake ID that said I was 29, when in (laughs) fact I was 15. Well, I um, went just to have the coffee, and if I remember, there was a cheesecake that was freaking delicious. Yes, they had cake. all different kinds of cheesecake. Yes, it was very like it was very. It seemed very gourmet. At oh, the time. it was the most grown-up place. We would drive from Annapolis. There was a books. It had. A, it was this huge restaurant. It had a bookstore, an art gallery. It was sometimes had like classical music, um, and you know anyone who was anyone worked there or was seen there um if you were a huge nerd (laughs) anyway (laughs) exactly but this story is not actually about louis bookstore cafe it has it ties into it but no it's about um jimmy rouse the storyteller's time um the legendary mardix mardix restaurant which was well you'll hear about it in the story take a listen so i owned and operated Louis Bookstore Cafe from 1981 to when I sold it in 1998. And um, it was a very successful operation. I had as many as 95 people working there. Um, We were open lunch and dinner seven days a week. Uh, It was a 150-seat restaurant, so it was big. And uh, it was a delightful experience owning and running Louis. Stressful, I grant it. But um, it was um, a a wonderful place, a very warm place. We had classical music every night and on Sunday brunch. We had art shows every six weeks. And in the upstairs gallery now are 25 artists that showed at Louis because each show had three or four artists. Uh, It was a big space. There was a lot of wall space to cover. And... I changed shows every six weeks, so I knew every artist in Baltimore, um, which was a wonderful experience for me. Um, but the stories I want to tell you tonight are not about Louis. It's sort of a prenatal Louis, because for the seven and a half years before I started Louis, I worked at Mardix. And the reason I want to talk about Mardix are a couple of reasons. First of all, Morris was a lot more colorful figure than I was, so there's great stories about Mardix. And as the owner of a restaurant, you didn't hear the great stories about your place because people obviously didn't want to tell the boss what had really happened. So 
The third reason I wanted to tell you about Mardix is because Mardix is under threat. Of the building that Mardix was in is under threat of demolition now. There's a developer that's bought that whole block. Mar the Mardix building was built in pre-Civil War Baltimore. Um, his family came over as Polish immigrants in 1917 and settled in what was then a Chinese ghetto. His family was Jewish and opened a grocery store there and lived above it. His uh, mother had five children, so Morris grew up there. And he basically died there at the age of 86. He never lived anywhere else but in that building. And during the, the business evolved in, in 1917, it was a grocery store. When prohibition was put into place, they used to sell alcohol out the back, and which was not uncommon with grocery stores at that time. And Morris's father made the mistake of selling alcohol to a man in a trench coat <laughs> and ended up being sent away for a couple of years, a, a story that Morris always told with great venom about his father. How can he be so stupid as to serve a man in a trench coat? <laughs> but but um, after Prohibition, they got a liquor license, and it became a, a bar and a restaurant. And it was uh, one of the first integrated restaurants in Baltimore. Uh, it had jazz. It had some famous jazz singers like Billie Holiday sang there. And... Um, the, all the siblings in the family, it was a family business. All the siblings worked, worked there. In the 50s, it began to morph into more of a beatnik, um, art, artists, sun papers, reporters, hangout. Um, all Morris's siblings figured out a reason to leave, and Morris didn't. He was stuck there, and the business became him. He... Uh, he lived upstairs on the third floor. The kitchen was on the second, the restaurant on the first. He worked from the time he got up at 7 in the morning to the time he went to bed at 10 or 11 at night when we closed. Every day, five days a week. And uh, he did all the shopping. He didn't trust deliveries. He did the shopping in the morning between 7 and 10. Come back, set up the register. That's when I would come in. And then um, we'd go upstairs, prep lunch, cook lunch, go out shopping, come back, cook dinner, come back down. So that was Morris's life. Um, so Morris was a, a very idiosyncratic person. He was not easy to get along with. And he had trouble getting along with his customers. So in 1967, he decided to close the bar, and he was a very good cook. He, wa he wanted to learn how to cook French food and come back and open Mardix as a French restaurant, which he did. He, and he went to France, and he worked in this little country restaurant that had a, a stream running through the back. And that's where he got his French culinary experience. And he 
brought that experience back with him to Mardix. And, and I went to work there in 1974 and worked till 1981 when I left to open Louis. So that was my total restaurant, the only restaurant I ever worked in when I went to open Louis. And so Morris was my mentor. And he was a very interesting mentor. And often at the beginning of the evening, or maybe at the end, when he was free of the responsibility of cooking, he would be sitting down in the dining room, always very plainly dressed, looking more like working class somebody off the street than a restaurant owner. And he was working class because he did all the work. And, and um, he would come down, and a table would be sitting there, and they would call him over and say, well, what do you recommend? And Morris would look at him and say, well, I recommend you try another restaurant. <laughs> and they would look quizzically at him, and, and he would respond and say, but if you decide to stay here, you've come to a very good location. Johns Hopkins is just five minutes to the east, and University of Maryland Shock Trauma is just five minutes to the west. <laughs> so this went over differently with different people according to what they'd heard. And then I would have to come behind him and say, he's only kidding. Because <laughs> you know? for me, that was a tip. <laughs> so one of the things Morris did to bring France to Baltimore was to mimic the, the stream that ran behind it, his, the French restaurant he'd work in. They used to serve trout au bleu, which means the trout was so fresh that when you cooked it, the blood turned blue. And so Morris decided he'd get a big fish tank, and he put that between the bar and the back of the restaurant and went to Pennsylvania and got trout from a hatchery and would bring them down and put them in the fish tank. And then when somebody ordered trout, he had a net and he would come down and scoop out the fish and take it up to the kitchen and cook it. Well, I was there one night and I saw him, a customer chose trout and Morris scooped out the trout and went upstairs. And after a few minutes, I saw this customer get up and bolt to go upstairs, and so I followed him up because I didn't know what they wanted. And he got he arrived at the kitchen door, and Mar said, "Well, what are you doing here?" And he said, "I wanted to make sure you're going to cook my fish." Well, at that minute, Mar had put the fish on the table and was trying to knock it out and cut off its head, and the fish had jumped off the table onto the floor and was squirming around on the floor right when the guy arrived at the kitchen door. And Mars said, yes, I'm cooking your fish, and there he is, right on the floor. <laughs> so Morris is very entertaining, and the, the history of Mardix helped me develop Louis into a very whimsical place that would appeal to people. And so I, I would really like, to enlist your all support and us trying to preserve the building of Mardix. And if you're so inclined, you can do that by it's presently in front of CHAP, which is the Committee of Historical 
and architectural preservation in the city. And you could write them and say, this is history worth preserving. And maybe, just maybe, we can save that building and all the history that goes with it. And that was the birthplace of Louis, so we're saving a part of Louis, too. So thank you very much. You ate it, Marduk. So did we yes. eat there together? I don't remember if we ate there together. What I remember is that it smelled strongly of dirty socks. Yeah. But it was delicious food. Yeah. Oh, it was it was also like a you know, you it was a word of mouth thing and I was really grateful to have been able to um, yeah, eat in there like there. the last month, I think, before it, it, it shut down. So, yeah. Okay. So, before we get on to the next story for today, we want to thank another restaurant, Golden West, which is very much running and serving food and delicious drinks and everything. They've been doing great throughout the pandemic with everyone's support. So, keep supporting them. They're on the avenue in Hamden. We also I just want to a, thank an amazing oh. vegan burrito from there, by the way. Nice. Mm -hmm. And we want to thank Baltimore Magazine, which has been covering this city uh, online and in their print magazine, which is on newsstands, has been a great supporter of the podcast. Next storyteller is uh, from Jen Silverman, who I actually really don't know anything about because Jen told a story at our all audience show uh, off the menu, which actually I think was the same show that Jimmy Rouse told the story at Creative Alliance um, before the world collapsed into pandemic land. And this was a story that is so near and dear to my heart because it is about Jen and her husband's adoration of restaurants in Baltimore, so much so that they, well, they become data-driven about it and take a <laughs> My grandmother was the worst cook in the world. She loved to cook for her family. She would serve us chicken that was still bleeding or meat that was so cooked to death that we couldn't, couldn't cut it. And she would never go to a restaurant because it was her grandma. She liked to be the grandma who cooked for her grandkids. And we weren't allowed to tell her we didn't like it. We had to figure out how to mush around on our plate, make it look like we'd eaten and be very careful to not get salmonella. Because I'm not talking about like a little underdone. I'm talking like red, got blood gushing out. So my mother, who's the daughter of my grandmother, was a very good cook, but she did not cook. She cooked on like holidays, but she did not, we did not come home from school and have a nice dinner every night. We ate, but we did not have a home cook. And I asked my mom about this, like, mom, you're a good cook. Like grandma's a terrible cook and she cooks all the time. <laughs> And you're really good at cooking, but like you don't you don't do it. Why? And my mom said, Well, my mom was very religious growing up, and she said, if God meant for her to cook, he wouldn't have she lived in New York City, said if God meant for her to cook, he would not have had me live somewhere with such fine restaurants. <laughs> so growing up, I thought restaurants were a gift from God. <laughs> this was <laughs> this was to me what restaurants represented. So of course it was always important to go to restaurants, eat good food. So my, my long-term partner, my husband, who's here, um, him and I eat out a lot. I don't like to look at the credit card bills. We don't need to think about that. Um, and so one night, a couple of years into our relationship, we were like, hey, I wonder if we've been to 100 restaurants together. You know, 100 seems like a lot. And we started just naming our restaurants on our fingers that we'd been to, and we quickly were unable to keep track. So we went home, and we did what any two good data scientists would do. We made a spreadsheet. <laughs> of restaurants that we've been to 
And we made rules. You can't just be any. So we travel a lot. And when we travel, most people plan a vacation destination around, this is the site we want to see, and what do we want to eat that's near there? Ours is, here's this good restaurant. What's nearby? <laughs> so, so we made rules that we weren't going to count restaurants we'd been to on vacation. So it had to be restaurants nearby. So we had to define nearby. So first we said, well, anywhere in Maryland. And then we went to Ocean City, and we said, well, this is a vacation. So we said, anywhere in Maryland west of the Bay Bridge. <laughs> and then we went to Deep Creek Lake. So then we had to define where west was. So we said, anywhere in Maryland as far west as Masson covers, because that was, you could watch the Orioles, so it was still Baltimore territory. So that's about Hagerstown-ish, in case you're curious. Um, and then we had more rules. So we counted which restaurants we'd been to. We didn't double count if we'd been there multiple times. It was still one count. And that's where the more, more rules came in, because restaurants change all the time. So if this was the same restaurant, but they had a new menu... Is it a new place? Is it the same place? I don't know. If it's in the same building, but it's a totally different restaurant, there's a restaurant on our corner that in the 10 years I've been there has been like eight different places. How do we count it? So we made rules. So new owner, new menu, new location. It has to hit at least two out of three of those to be a new restaurant. <laughs> and sometimes, for, sometimes we'll honor milestones and be like, okay, we're going to hit our 200th restaurant. How should we celebrate? But then this has gotten really, but then we'll realize, oh no, we double counted, or we forgot to count a place. So that was really our 201st, so what do we do? <laughs> so our restaurant, and it also becomes stressful every time we're deciding to eat. Do we go back to an old favorite, but, or do we expand a new list? And a couple of years ago, Andrew decided he was going to be a vegetarian. And you would think, well, that, that does eliminate certain places that we hadn't been to that we now couldn't go because they're not friendly. That's the one I'm thinking of, actually. <laughs> but on the other hand, it somehow, it makes it, so. but on the other hand, so now the criteria is they have to also have a good vegetarian option. So our spreadsheet has the name of the restaurant, the neighborhood that it's in, if we've gotten takeout from them or if we've eaten in the restaurant, <laughs> a rough approximation of the number of times we've been there, <laughs> if it was pre or post vegetarian, Andrew, and then just a general comments column. So we're now at over 500 restaurants. <laughs> and I have to say, in the introduction tonight, when he mentioned the event tomorrow, and we can't come tomorrow, but he said, oh, they're catering it from a Yemeni restaurant around here. We both pulled out our phones to be like, maybe we want dinner from there tonight. <laughs> so <laughs> continue to think restaurants are a gift from God. And I, like, I do cook. But I, like my mother, also am grateful that God had me live in this wonderful city with all of these good restaurants. And so I was going to end with, if anyone had any new restaurant recommend, if anyone needed restaurant recommendations, come ask me. But since the food and restaurant editor of Baltimore Magazine is here, I'm not sure I can compete. <laughs> but anyway, I'm Jen, and that's my restaurant life. I love any kind of story in which someone pursues a passion with such all-out you know, obsession and just like goes deep, you know, mm -hmm. the going deep into whatever. I love that. And I know you identify with that because you love restaurants. In fact, we've talked, we've talked like just very recently, like, what do you miss most? And I was saying, I miss meeting in people's homes. And you were saying, I really miss restaurants. Oh my God, I do. Yeah. And, you know, to those of you who are out there eating in restaurants, even while this is happening, that's amazing. I would never do it. And that is very telling, <laughs> I think, um, that I'm a person who 
absolutely have said it a million times on the podcast. I grew up in restaurants. I love restaurants. They feel like home to me in a way that nothing else does. And I will not step foot in a restaurant during the pandemic. So, um, but I can't wait to do so after I get my vaccine. So we have another yeah. storyteller, Helman Karzai, who is, um, he's a father, he's a husband, he's a restaurateur, he's a major Orioles fan. He owns um, this delicious place in uh, Station North in Baltimore called Tapas Teatro. And um, he comes from the family that um, owns the Helmond, which is another Baltimore-based restaurant that is adored, um, has amazing Afghani food. And it's actually where Aaron and I met on our first date, my husband and I. So um, here is Helmond basically kind of talking about what we were just talking about. Give him a listen. So uh, I grew up uh, in a restaurant family. My father has been in the restaurant business uh, pretty much his entire adult life. And I can remember him telling me when I was young, never get into the restaurant business. You'll never see your family. And, uh, well, uh, in middle school, I started bussing tables at the Helmond. And aside from a brief period in college when I was a line cook at Bill Bateman's, I've stayed in the family restaurant, in the the family business uh, my whole life. And I loved it. Um, I love the energy of a restaurant. I love the camaraderie you have with the people you work with. I love the, I love talking to guests. I love them, you know, I love that interaction with guests. I love the energy. I love the social aspect of it. It's brought me a love of food. It's brought me a love of wine that's really become one of my life's biggest passions. But, you know, along with all of that, the restaurant business has this crazy schedule. You know, you're sometimes in at one or two in the afternoon and you're not done till two or three in the morning. Um, Weekends, forget about it, you know. If, you know, better be a good friend if I'm going to your wedding on a weekend, you know. I got married on a Tuesday. Um, And so this kind of schedule, it really, it's with that kind of grueling schedule, it kind of, it goes, it goes quick. Days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years. And then it gets to a point where, you know, I now have a family. And my daughter was born about a year and a half ago. And other than the two weeks or so after she was born, I kind of jumped right back into that grueling schedule. Um, That's until uh, March 16th, whenever uh, governor closed restaurants for indoor dining. And then I had all this time, and I was with my family the whole time. I was there when my daughter woke up in the morning. I was there whenever she went to bed at night, and it was time I never would have had before. So there was that aspect to it. But it also, like, at the same time, I'm also having this kind of anxiety about what's going to happen to our family business, but at the same time thinking, what the heck were we doing, like, working like that, like... Um, I'm getting to enjoy this, uh, this time, and is this all really worth it, keeping up that schedule? And I just kind of got a little bit maybe disillusioned with the restaurant business a little bit. And then um, whenever uh, we were allowed to open for carryout, we did that. But carryout, there's no energy in carryout, you know. 
There's no uh, interaction. There's no personal interactions with carry out. There's no camaraderie with the people you work with and carry out. And it and it kind of just like made me go deeper into that hole of man, what 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 are we doing here? And then it came to a point where we realized that one of our restaurants, Pen and Quill, wasn't going to make it through this pandemic, and we decided it was best to just close it. And it wasn't emotional for me at all at that point. It was you know it was a business decision. This is what we have to do. Um, you know, when you're closing a restaurant, it's a it's a whole lot of work. There's uh, Lots of cleaning, lots of getting rid of perishables, figuring out where you're taking uh, all this stuff, selling off some equipment. And then it came time for me to pack up the wine cellar there. 800 to 1,000 bottles, and I did it mostly by myself. And as I'm sitting there, like, packing up these bottles... I knew what I was going to do with some of them. I can use some of these at this restaurant. Oh, I can use some of these at this place. Oh, these big name Italian wines. Somebody will, somebody will buy those. I know somebody will buy those. Oh, these French Burgundies. Somebody will buy those. But then I got to these other wines, these kind of like weird, esoteric, um, you know, a mixed case of orange wines from Italy, a uh, two cases of American Gamay, a grape from uh, Beaujolais that's got a checkered past here in the States, uh, a Pinot Noir from Slovenia, all wines that I had a whole bunch of passion for, but I just didn't know how could I, nobody's going to buy these. And then it dawned on me, like, that's the part that I've been missing through this whole thing, is this, for me to feel passionate and excited about something, and then passing that on to both the staff and guests that come through that door to make them equally passionate about it um, and let them enjoy it uh, and, and kind of just kind of share that excitement with you, with me. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I really miss the uh, human interaction, and uh, I really can't wait till we get back to somewhat normal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I do think about what a shock to the system it must be for all of these restaurant folks who work such long hours, so many days a week, and then suddenly when they were all closed up, it's like it's like a limb was amputated, you know? It's just uh, on top of everything, the financials, everything, just the sense that this wasn't, you're not wired for this life anymore, you know? You're wired to, to for the restaurant life. Yeah. Well, we'll get back to the long hours and hot kitchens soon enough. Totally. Totally. I mean, this is the all consuming nature of working in a restaurant, even just being a waitress at a restaurant, I would come home and have like dreams of dreams of Chi-Chi's. Well, that wasn't that particular restaurant. It's another <laughs> restaurant, but yes, yeah, like, of like, Oh my God, I forgot to give this person this thing that dream where you're trying to get to this person to deliver whatever they wanted, their coffee, their cream, whatever. Anyway, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just gets in your head. It gets in your head. Oh, um, but absolutely. yes, hopefully we will all be back there soon. Until such time, we want to thank the Wine Source, which is a wonderful store offering all kinds of beverages and snacks and hors d'oeuvres and tasty tidbits. And they are on Elm Avenue in Hamden. And we want to thank Maureen Harvey, who produces the podcast. And if you want to learn more about our upcoming shows this spring, we have a couple digital shows online. 
You can check out stoopstorytelling.com and you can find our podcast wherever you get your audio content. And we will see you here in two weeks. Stay safe. See if you take a shit on the stage.